Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your own backyard. Tonight, we have the thriller of music albums, Christopher Polson. <laughs> Listen, if I'm the thriller album, I, I've been thinking about this one all day. You're the Beach Boys Pet Sounds masterpiece. Masterpiece. Yeah, I am honored. I thought you were going to give me Debbie Gibson, but hey, I'm in. I'm in. I'll take the Beach Boys. Thank you, sir. Vito McKenzie on this end. Chris, how are we doing this week? Hey, I'm doing good, doing good, doing good. I am at time of recording fresh uh, back into the classroom. We're teaching in person. Um, How many people do you have in your class again? You got what, 42? I have have one big class and one small class. I'll say that. That's what I have. I have one big class and one small class. Um, And uh, they're both both amazing. Um, But it's great to be teaching again. Uh, I don't know what the future holds. Someone asked if I had plans for the weekend the other day. And I said, I don't make dinner plans until lunch these days. Um, <laughs> so I, who knows where we're going, but it's, it's good to be a teacher. Um, in my role as chaplain, I, I had a lot of really good encounters already this week, uh, supporting a lot of students. And one of the things that I said in our, um, in our mid-season check-in, just really focusing on those things you and I have committed to from the five minutes or free episodes. I've been really, really focusing on that not just being something I say, and but making it something I do. And I find it's just, it's making me better at being a teacher, which I need because I'm not that good. Oh, stop. Stop. Award-winning teacher over there. Yeah, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not that good. I'm looking for praise, okay? Fishing. How fishing, are you? Fishing. How are you, Vito you McKenzie? Know, it's good. We finished our sixth octomester right before. The octomester. The octomesters before our break. So we actually have, we're on break right now. And what was nice is that we finished on the Friday and I just put my head down, powered through, got it all done, wrapped up, marked report cards done. So I got to actually enjoy the time with this uh, break. And, you know, I, I tell people I'm actually spending quality time with my family now, not just quantity time. And uh, every day has been a bit, bit different. You, uh, Ontario teachers, you deserve it. It kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. <laughs> you deserve it. Um, whenever I was feeling tired, I was like, I had a convention break and now I'm on my Easter break and they have one and it keeps getting pushed back. So you deserve it. it. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. Well, you know, we're all, we're all trying really hard, but you know what, Chris, we, We've been talking about us. Like like, seriously, why why are we still talking about this? We have, we have someone incredible on the show. Like I am just so thrilled. Oh, I I, I want to, uh, because I'm so thrilled he could be on here. Like you, you have to understand I was, just excited because uh, this is a person who his name comes up so often in the board that I'm at whenever I'm at his, I've been at, I think eight schools in this board uh, through various contracts and whatnot. And every time I see a teacher doing something very clever and I'm like, Oh, very smart. Or like just some really great things happening in the classroom. I'm like, Oh, that's so awesome. And they're like, Oh, well I learned it from him. And I'm like, ah, he's so good. I like, I got to teach with him very, very briefly. But uh, he's um, he's been teaching for oh geez, he's gonna come and attend. He's been teaching for well over twenty five years. Um, 
uh, he has started in seven, eight, and then he is a high school. He's the department head of contemporary studies. He's taught history, geography, law, indigenous studies. And in the last few years, he's taught cooperative education. Uh, he lives in Ottawa and he's hoping to have a dog in his home soon. I'm, I'm really sorry that the, there was a dog that left. So my sympathies, but we got tonight on the show, Michael Bernards, Michael, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here with you. Oh, we are so thrilled that to, to have you, you are, here. You are exaggerating slightly, but I'm not quite <laughs> Teacher Zero, but okay. No, teacher you are. Zero. You we are. got Teacher Zero tonight. <laughs> That's how we're advertising this show. We have Teacher Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Michael. So, like, honestly, I, I, I could go on, and a lot of people gave me so much information to, to, to say, make sure to mention this, and I was like, I, I'll let him do it. Um, but with all our guests, we, we do want to hear about your journey. So let's start off. Tell us your story of how you got into teaching and what kind of turned you into the teacher you are today. Okay. Well, um, it's funny. I was thinking about these things earlier today, and I was reflecting that if you had told me when I was in high school that I was going to be a high school teacher, I simply would have laughed at you. Uh, I would have thought, never in my life, this is not something I would do. Who ever would want to be a high school teacher? But at the same time, I was a competitive uh, figure skater throughout high school, well, and before. And because there's not a lot of males who skate, uh, and I was in ice dancing, I ended up doing a lot of what's called partnering for skaters who were doing test sessions in their ice dancing. So you kind of fill in as the partner, so they would have someone to dance with while they were being tested. Um, and that sort of put me in a bit of a coaching role, which I always really enjoyed. So while I thought I would never be a teacher, I always liked being a coach. And I thought that that might be one option that I'd pursue. Uh, but, you know, things happen and I decided that skating wasn't my thing, although coaching did put me through university. But I went to university instead and I was a history major and of course when people say what are you going to do with your history major uh, there's not always a lot of things that come to mind teaching <laughs> one but still first second year no they weren't on my dream job actually and I know this is going to sound ridiculous was to be an archaeologist uh, I always thought that I would be in a desert somewhere and I would trip over a rock and then turn around and start digging around that rock and unearth some ancient city and that would be my claim <laughs> to fame uh, but alas that didn't happen either uh, so as uh, my fourth year was wrapping up I applied to teachers college but only UVO and they rejected me outright. Uh, so I had also applied to master's programs and I was accepted into master's at Carleton University as well where I had done my BA and then as the master's was wrapping up I once again applied to teachers college this time I cast a wider net Queens Ottawa U and U of T Queens rejected me. I received the letter on April 1st, and the date on the letter was April 2nd, informing me that I would not be. Uh, so I think wow. they wrote that. Yeah, I think they wrote that letter in December, two days after they received my application, and they just were a bit hasty in putting it in the mail. Uh, Ottawa, you put me on the wait list, and <laughs> I'm not making it up. And, oh. And the University of Toronto accepted me, so that's where I went. Uh, and I had grown up in Toronto. I had gone to high school. Well, since I was about five, I had lived in Toronto. And so I returned and I lived with my parents for those eight months of University of uh, Toronto Teachers College. And by then, they were reasonable human beings, so I didn't mind at all. Uh, <laughs> I went away to university and my parents got a lot smarter. Uh, anyway, so I uh, at U of T, I had been put in a cohort of about 25 or so students 
for uh, teaching gifted students. Uh, it was a new program they were starting and I had expressed an interest and I got put in there. So I shared all of my classes, except for obviously my curriculum classes, history and English with that same group of 25. And we formed quite a nice little group. Uh, and so a lot of the early approaches to education I had received from those people because we spent a lot of time discussing things. And there was quite a variety of people, including a guy who was a saxophone player, a fabulously accomplished saxophone player, who one day in class said he didn't believe in creativity. Uh, so we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, he was a gifted musician who was not didn't think creativity was a thing. Uh, I still can't explain it. Anyway, uh, what, so what, what was his sorry? What was his explanation then? They just uh, you just do. I really just... don't know. I think it was just you. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't have a good answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> okay. He just he's his exact <laughs> phrase was creativity is bunk. That's exactly what he had said. <laughs> okay. Okay. We've yeah, been so. the unapologist podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right out of Teachers College, I started supply teaching at Pearson. In fact, I got my first call for a supply job when I was still in Toronto. Uh, and so I had to get in the car and drive overnight to get there in time. Uh, and that led to just at the time it was people would stop you in the hall and say, are you available tomorrow? There was no phone system or anything like that. And so that just sort of spiraled and I did more and more supply teaching and a couple contracts. And then I was finally hired from Pearson. So that was in 1992, in the spring of 92. Uh, and every single day of my teaching career, with the exception of one supply day, was at Pearson. The one other day was at a school called St. Matthew's. One day I did there. So yeah. you... Uh, so I'm a lifer. <laughs> I, yeah, no, you, you came in day one and that's it. Yeah. You yeah. planted your roots there and yeah, you certainly have. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about that later. So yeah. you, you got in, you started in the 7-8 panel, correct? Yes, I did. I uh, did a well. I did a full year of uh, supply teaching, including some contracts, and then I got hired on as an LTO for a seven-eight teacher who ultimately never came back. So that LTO lasted the full year, and then following year I got hired on full time as a permanent teacher, also seven-eight. And then the following year I slid over to the high school panel, and that's where I've been since. I really like that. That speaks a lot to the, uh, I call it the grind when you're starting your teaching career, you know, saying yes to the sub jobs, hoping there's another sub job tomorrow, hoping they stop you in the hall. And, and now with the phone systems, it's a little different, but it, you know, essentially it's the same thing, you know, we're going to need you. Can you turn this three days into five days? Um, and I think there's, there's a, there's just a grind that happens that no matter what it, the coat of paint we have on it, whether it's person to person or phone calls or on the internet, it's, it's, that's just something that's part of the industry. For sure. Yep. So what, what, what kind of influenced your teaching then as, as you progressed on, because you've, you've been there since 92 and kind of your growth as a teacher there and. Oh, for sure. And uh, I mean, you always come in fresh faced thinking you're going to change the world and everything's, you know, you're going to be, uh, everything will be fantastic. But, and it was, I can't say that I didn't enjoy and I haven't enjoyed it, but it's Pearson is a really unique school. And I know we'll talk about engagement schools again, but for now, Pearson is a fairly small school as far as high schools in Ontario go or in Ottawa, I guess. At the time, at its biggest, it was about 1,100 students. We're down to about 800 now. So it's a smaller high school, which has some challenges just in terms of the types of courses that can be offered. But it's also very much a community. And um, the it's being an engagement school, there's some difficult uh, moments. And so a lot of staff support for one another. It's a small building. 
So very few people have an, their own office or very few people don't have to share a classroom. So you end up spending a lot of time sharing space with other teachers, not just in your own little isolated world with your students, then you never see anyone else. The staff room really a very, very busy place. Uh, so what really though, and you learn a lot from the teachers who have been there before. And so I always think, you know, there's a lot of really, really important people who early in my career uh, gave me sort of sage advice and an approach to teaching that I still now have today. So, for example, uh, I was told very early in my career that the curriculum doesn't matter uh, because no one ever checks. <laughs> so especially true. especially in the social studies i mean math i get it because there's scaffolding and things but no one ever checks uh so do what you need to do to make good connections with students and you teach and you do your thing but you don't sweat the curriculum you don't sweat oh my gosh there is a assembly today and now i'm a day behind and i was going to have a test on thursday that just doesn't matter you got to be more fluid with that uh, another I, uh, yeah go ahead sorry i was just I, gonna I, say I, that, I love that yeah yeah, another uh, one that I learned early on in my first year of high school when I was really frustrated with a bunch of grade 12, well, OACs at the time, uh, senior students, is they just were not making the thing, doing the things that I wanted them to do. And a older teacher at the time, her name was Helen White. I don't know, Vito, if she was there when, if you ever crossed no, paths No, I, I did hear about her, though. I, yeah. I didn't know. And I didn't know she, you know, in a, only, she was not quite a grandmother at the time, but she could have been. Uh, and, you know, the way that a older person pats you on the arm gently, and she says, now, now, Michael, we want them to make adult decisions, but they're not adults yet. And that one really <laughs> stuck with me because, you know, yeah, it's so true that, you know, this 17-year-old has done something really stupid and they didn't get their work done. Well, maybe the adult decision was to not go out and to do your work instead, but they're not an adult yet, so we have to guide them. Uh, my supply teaching days taught me that really very few things matter. I only ever had two rules. The first one was no fires, and the second was keep your clothes on. <laughs> what was the second one again? <laughs> keep your clothes on. <laughs> 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 and, uh, really that's what got me through because nothing else mattered i mean as far as behaviors go you can deal with them i mean if something's on fire now we got a crisis i'll send a student to the office for setting a fire and i'll send a student to the office if they're taking their clothes off but pretty much other than that you're not going to get out of my class quite so easily and you know they learn quite this so I... <laughs> easily he said quite so well, easily well you know there's some teachers who you, you turn oh, to your yeah. neighbor and ask to borrow a pencil and he gets sent to the office and you know that's really i think in a poor approach. And uh, the last one I learned, and although this one came to me later, and maybe I'll come back to it after, is uh, let sleeping students sleep. Okay, yeah, let's do, I want to get back to that later. That That is especially uh, Pearson, I remember, was on my first contracts there, I was very green. <laughs> my very first day, grade nine religion, fist fight breaks out in the classroom. <laughs> And I just like, I, I have to do something or else that's, it's over. So I actually grabbed the two students and literally threw them in the hall. And they came later to apologize for doing what was that. The, what was the fight over? Thou shalt not steal. That's the most important one. <laughs> I don't remember. Some guy was bugging another guy and he just got set up. I don't know. Grade nine boys, right? Like they just, or just grade nine kids, I should say, getting emotional and hormonal about everything but anyway um I, I like your rules no fires don't and keep your clothes on i like that <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> so there, there are many wonderful things that always come up about you. One of them being your involvement outside the classroom. And as you said, the school you're at is a very community-driven one. So can you take us through your history as both a, a coach and your dedication also to being a league convener for volleyball for so many, many years? And like, what gives you the drive to dedicate, dedicate so much of your time to it? Sure. Um, well, as I said before, coaching is something I always enjoyed. So when I started teaching, I realized very quickly that coaches were always needed. And uh, so that was an easy buy-in for me. And of course, like most first-year teachers uh, who are in contract or preparationary jobs or whatever, you're doing everything you can to make yourself as valuable as possible. Uh, so if they said, hey, we need a coach, and you said yes, uh, and they said, hey, we need a coach, and you said yes. Uh, so my first-year LTO contract, I coached, I think, nonstop from September to June. Wow. Uh, I know for sure soccer, basketball, volleyball, softball, track and field, and touch football. Uh, some of which I didn't know very much about. Uh, and there could have been others. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but I just kept saying yes to coaching. It was relentless. And I mean, you're younger. You're, you are you don't have family obligations and stuff. So it was easy to buy into. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, though, you're brand new. So you're worried about balancing all your teaching. And at the time, grade 7, 8, I had six different preps uh, that rotated over a course of two days. So it was a lot of a lot of late nights that way. Over time, I gradually reduce the amount of coaching I do, but then I increase other things like other extracurricular roles, both staff-based and student-based. So now I'm down to the senior girls volleyball, which I've been coaching for 20-something years, and I've been wow. convening for about 15. Um, it is a pretty easy sport to convene, I have to say, because there's very few disciplinary issues. If you want a difficult convener job, take up the soccer. That's where all the arguments are. Uh, and I'm not kidding. Of all the oh. disciplinary hearings in our school board probably 80 85 percent are soccer matches where the wow. disciplinary issues are yeah because it's supposed to be a non-contact sport but of course we all watch right. soccer, right, right? and right. so i mean a football game or rugby they take it out on the field volleyball you have a net between you but soccer there's a lot of contact and a lot of one referee trying to watch everything and then you throw the fans in there and it just becomes crazy so convening volleyball was pretty easy to buy into and again it wasn't an overwhelming thing and it was um, just something that I kind of enjoyed doing. And um, you asked about the drive and dedication. Really, that's the easy part. And remember, I said curriculum doesn't matter. Uh, working with students outside your classroom and developing those relationships with working with students and things they really do enjoy doing is got to be one of the better parts of the job. You know, students see you as a supporter. They see you encouraging them to learn, uh, have fun, that kind of thing. And it's a totally different relationship. And it makes, I think, the classroom relationship so much better as well because students see you as more than just the person who's saying you know study for your math test right mm -hmm. uh so i'm not trying to suggest that it's trying to be you know their friend because you still have that relationship it's still a coach uh athlete or a teacher student but truly it's i think demonstrating that you care more for them than simply memorizing math formulas or some event in history or something like that. So just adding more layers yeah. to the relationship, exactly more yeah. human layers too. Oh, yeah. so they're not just the math teacher. They also have this about them and this about exactly. them. And wait yeah. a minute, they actually care about me. Yeah. So another area that, that, that comes up then quite often is your dedication to learning about the indigenous cultures of Canada. 
and bring it into the class. And you brought it into the classroom years before it was even on the radar screen for most school boards. And and so, what was the genesis of that? Like, what 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 got you? Like, okay, this need let's bring it here. Let's bring it front and center. And um, kind of your methodology for engaging students to learning about it because you you have an overflowing class for so many years. For sure. Uh, well, I'm going to actually back up the train a little bit and tell you a short story about when I moved into the high school panel. Uh, shortly after I did that, the uh, department head of social studies left Pearson and nobody else wanted the job. Nobody at Pearson wanted the job and I guess no one from outside of Pearson wanted in. Um, so I got the job as department head, which I am happy to have. I'm no longer the department head because when I moved into co-op, I had to give it up, but that's okay. Um, but Early, I think first year, maybe my second year of being a department head, uh, I'm uh, I'm told there's a call for you online too or whatever. So I pick up the phone and I don't know the person's name. I don't know her name. All I know is that she was very, very angry. Uh, she was an indigenous woman and she was very, very angry because there was just zero uh, indigenous content being taught at schools. And she was right, there was nothing. And so she wanted to know what I was gonna do about it. Uh, and of course, I'm you know new to the job and I'm young and I'm worried. And so I kind of stammer curriculum, blah, 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 Ministry of Education, I don't know, I'm sorry. And really that's kind of where we leave the conversation, this conversation. And she hangs up the phone as angry as when she dialed. Maybe angrier because she knew that I wasn't going to fix anything about it, so she would have to find someone else. So that was in the mid-90s, maybe 96 or 97 that that happened. And then in about 2010, the OCSB decided to pilot Indigenous Studies courses. And you're giving me, again, too much credit. I'm not the one who was the creator of the idea of having Indigenous courses, but I did jump at the chance. And so they decided they were going to pilot Indigenous Studies courses in six of our high schools. Some would be the grade nine art class and some would be the grade 11's issues course. And if you've seen me draw, you know that I'm not going to be the art teacher. Uh, although in grade seven and eight, I did teach art um, very poorly. Uh, <laughs> anyway, a perspective. That's all I could get them to do. Anyway, uh, so I was fortunate enough to be one of the people who was given the opportunity to teach the grade 11 course. And uh, we did a ton of in-service beforehand in the spring leading up to the September launch. We met with elders, we had guest speakers, ton of PD. I was out of the class a lot for that. And we all, all six of us, the teachers, none of whom were Indigenous, um, had a lot of worry and anxiety over how well we were going to do. Because here I am, a middle-aged white guy teaching Indigenous studies. And so am I going to be a, a good person for that and yes i i can use words like ally and things like that and i can do my best but still who would disagree that it wouldn't be better to have an indigenous person teaching indigenous content to students but given the situation the lack of indigenous teachers in the system and none at pearson it fell to me and i was eager for the opportunity but i was also very very anxious uh what I did learn during those in-service when we were talking with a number of uh, elders and different people from the community, some of whom I still have a relationship with, um, we were always assured that, you know, if we're teaching with an open mind and a good heart, we would be fine. Uh, and what we were doing was infinitely better than the nothing that was being done before. 
right? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Something better than nothing. Yes. yes. Exactly. Math we can all know. So this is for me personally and professionally, I think probably the biggest area of growth in my career when I jumped over and I said yes to teaching the indigenous studies, because before I had taught history, I taught geography, I taught a little bit of English, I taught law, and these were none of these things were unfamiliar to me, so I could teach them easily. And while specific content, and again, content doesn't matter, but you still got to work with something, specific content may have been unfamiliar, and I had to kind of relearn or teach myself, be a couple pages ahead of the students in the textbook, at least I had a grounding in the subject. Indigenous studies, nothing, because I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, nothing about indigenous content other yeah. than yeah Zero. i mean yeah uh and certainly other than what you learn from john wayne movies basically is your indigenous content that sort of perspective so for me personally professionally huge area of growth and i learned a lot about indigenous cultures and issues i've learned to see the world in a different way and i'm going to say that it's been a huge benefit to me that then when i translate it to the students i think there's a certain amount of enthusiasm because I'm really learning and hey, this is what I know now and this is what I'd like you to know as well. And at Pearson, uh, most of the students in our classes are non-Indigenous. And those that may have Indigenous um, blood are generally speaking, not in touch with their Indigenous heritage. Uh, They've been very much sort of urbanized um, and they also are the children of parents and grandparents and to a certain extent, great-grandparents, who for you know the seven preceding generations were always told that it was bad to be Indigenous. And so a lot of kids didn't even know they really had Indigenous blood because their parents were embarrassed to admit it. They thought it would be a disservice to them if people knew they were Indigenous. And that's gradually changing. We have a long, long way to go. Uh, but Regardless, the students sitting in front of me in that classroom uh, knew nothing about Indigenous culture, and even the Indigenous students knew very, very little. So my goal, my sort of guiding principle on that was to make them as aware as possible about the issues and reasons why the issues facing the Indigenous community are what they are. A lot of it, of course, comes back to residential schools. A lot of it comes back to the reserve system and the loss of land and identity and culture, of course. Um, And then the next step to that is why people advocating for reconciliation have such a valid reason to demand the change uh and then the last thing i wanted to make sure is that i could give my students ammunition is not the right word of course but the tools the information and hopefully the courage to stand up to anti-indigenous sentiments when they hear them you know they're sitting around their dinner table at the Uh, at home and someone at the table says, oh, those stupid Indians are getting free stuff. And okay, really, let's let's back up and let's see where that statement is wrong on so many levels. We do have a long way to go. We're certainly not finished this path of reconciliation, but I truly sometimes wish that I could find that angry woman back and have a conversation with her and say, I recognize we have a long way to go, but look at the strides we've made. And when you walk into Pearson now, there are immediately in the front entrances 
obvious symbols and signs of indigenous culture and language and things. We have banners hanging in our atrium. We have pillars with the word welcome written in a number of different indigenous languages. It actually brought one of my guest speakers to my indigenous class to tears when he came in our building one time. And he said he never in his life thought that he would see inside a school, especially a Catholic school, because we all know the history of the Catholic Church and residential schools, his language, because he was beaten for speaking his language when he was in school. And it truly brought him to tears. And so to me, that's a huge step. And again, long way to go. But um, I'm so very proud to have been part of those steps. That's, that's amazing. And what I, I really love is that you say that you don't want your students just to learn, but to stand up and to fight back against anti-Indigenous rhetoric that gets thrown at them as, as a nice way. See, that that that's the key right there. They don't just become students, they become disciples of it. And that's phenomenal. And I, what I think is really cool, just hearing your story is, you know, you might have not been the person who said, we're going to do this, but you were one of the ground floor teachers. For sure. Um, in my school division, our newest elementary school is actually called Elsie Yannick Catholic School, who is who was a local elder. And the newest school we had before that is St. Kateri Catholic School. Right. Yep. And, we have one of those in Ottawa so as well, yeah. You were yeah. you were doing things in the nineties that now we're seeing schools being named after and recognizing the indigenous people who have had such an amazing impact. And and you you said something there that hit me right in the heart. You said yes. You said yes, and that's what it took. Yeah, you know, it, it's th that 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 yes started that path for you, and the ripple effect is is I'm over here in northern Alberta, and the stuff that you were starting is having impacts over here. Right, uh, amazing, amazing. Yeah, and you're right. We do have a a long way to go, and I'm just got to be courageous about it. I think one of my favorites is. I was thrown in as chaplain at Immaculata, another engagement school. And the chaplain before me said, okay, so, uh, you know, you have, you have an indigenous group of students who want to meet with you and their goal is a board-wide powwow. All right, I'm out of here. I'll see you in a year. I'm like, what? <laughs> I have no idea about this world. So they inaugurated me very quickly. And I think I, Immaculata... I went, I went to that powwow. Yeah, so that that's it. The, the, the students are amazing. They they took it over because we had an elder in, and she's just like, just make sure that the students are leading. That's that's all you got to do. I, and I said okay, and so whatever they want to do, I would support them and throw whatever I could behind them and learn on the way. But uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite the journey. Uh, so thank you, thank you for that. For thank you for taking that on. Uh, I think I know one of the art teachers who who took it on uh, as well. Uh, Graham, I think. Yeah, Graham was there. Yeah. Oh man just yeah that was that was a big one for me i i really liked that thank you so much for sharing that story and your journey and i thought it was so how you how you framed it in the narrative like there's so many people we wish we could talk to again and say you were right and we did it and we're working on it and we're not there yet but we're trying to get there and we're going to someday um amazing now so you've already touched upon this several times about you know you, we want to know kind of your general approach to the classroom. And you've already mentioned, you know, you know, the curriculum doesn't matter, right? It's you're teaching students. Um, but 
can, can you take us through your general approach beyond that? And you also integrate a lot of experiential learning or field trips, quote unquote, into your classes and just, just kind of take us through that as well with uh, what you do. Well, the uh, I'm going to expand a little bit, I think, on some of the ones that I mentioned earlier, like the idea about the curriculum doesn't matter. And, and the way I frame it is that no one has ever come back to me after being in my class and graduated and moved on saying, oh, my goodness, do you remember that lesson you gave us on the Vienna Congress? The Congress of Vienna? <laughs> that was critical to my being who I am today. No one's ever said that. But we all remember the good teachers and the bad teachers, the ones that made us feel welcome or unwanted, the ones that made us feel valued or belittled, or made us feel intelligent or stupid. And if, I mean, just the other day, um, coincidentally, I was reading on Twitter, someone posted that, you know, back when I was in grade, it was on April 11th, and the person said, you know, back when I was in grade four, we were playing a game of dodgeball and our team lost because the other team broke the rules and the gym teacher said, it doesn't matter. You're never going to remember this day. And I have news for you. I still do. <laughs> and this was, you know, 25 years later, this, this person still has a grudge for the grade four phys ed teacher about a decision they made in, in dodgeball. And then I made the mistake of traveling down the rabbit hole of reading the comments. And it was just, person after person after person after person saying, oh, my grade eight math teacher, oh, my grade 10 history teacher. Oh. And they were all nightmare stories about what their teachers had done. De poor decisions, you know, that just made them feel stupid or made them feel adequate, inadequate or whatever. And so that, you know, that speaks a lot to me because no one remembers the lesson on the Congress of Vienna. Everyone remembers that gym teacher who made the stupid decision or that math teacher who belittled them in class or whatever. Conversely, they also remember the teacher that made a difference for them in a positive way. And I think that's way more important as students graduate from our high schools is we want them to feel like they were well appreciated for who they were. The no one ever checks thing is really I speak a little bit as a luxury of teaching social studies. Uh, I can spend my entire grade nine geography class looking at volcanoes and never get to demographics because the students are really into volcanoes and they're learning a ton just by studying volcanoes. In and their that defense, volcanoes are awesome. <laughs> they are really cool, yeah. And there's people in Iceland playing volleyball next to a volcano. I saw pictures of that too. But that doesn't ruin the grade 10 history teacher's life, right? They can still teach grade 10 history even if the grade 9 geography curriculum wasn't covered the way it is outlined in the textbook. You can't. You don't have the same luxury for math. If I don't teach math concepts in grade 9, that student's going to be not successful in grade 10. So I get it. I have that luxury when I say the content, uh, no one ever checks, content doesn't matter. Content does matter, but it's more importantly, I think skills matter. So we can let the class go where they want as long as we are learning. To me, it doesn't matter what we're learning. And that's really how I think kids keep interested in the class is that they have some control over what we're doing. Now, I can't just say, we're going to do whatever you want. And the kids pick watching cat videos on YouTube. That's no, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't count. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can still have some control. And if they're really into volcanoes, let's explore volcanoes more for sure. Um, 
the part about you know they're not adults yet i think we've said enough about that it's uh just very true that we have to remember we're dealing with teenagers uh and they have a long way to go they're not going to be making those adult decisions every single time we want we can get mad at them for making a poor choice but my goodness we got to welcome them back the next day we can't just say you know i'm forever you're the student who made that bad decision and i can't let it go that's a terrible way to demonstrate growth um the no fires keep your clothes on that's really a reference to almost every single discipline issue is resolved before it happens and you make the classroom a place where the students want to be and they're not looking for excuses to get kicked out of the class because i'm convinced that many times that students misbehave it's because they don't want to be in the classroom and they know that if they misbehave they'll be sent out of the classroom and they win uh so i always thought to myself you're not going to win that easily you're going to have to put up with me for the entire 75 minute block uh and your only route out is to light a fire or take your clothes off and no one ever did <laughs> thankfully <laughs> no one ever did so i never actually had to live up to that threat uh, i did have a student one time ask me saying what happens if we all took off our clothes and lit them on fire i said well that's called a district that's called a district <laughs> and then the <laughs> other basic philosophy the one about the sleeping students um i actually take it as a compliment when a student falls asleep in my class and i know intuitively that doesn't make sense but really to me it's it means that they're feeling safe and secure to the point where they can let their guard down, put their head down on the desk, close their eyes and fall asleep. And they are more vulnerable at that moment in a classroom than any other time because anybody can do anything to them while they're asleep. So if they are so trusting and so completely safe and secure that they will let their guard down, I take that as a compliment that my class is a safe and secure place. Also, it's possible that they're just really tired. And we have all sorts of kids who are pulling late night duties, taking care of brothers and sisters, working part-time jobs to put food on the table for the family. So many students really do have a difficult, uh, difficult road to hoe. So I don't want to sort of immediately judge, you know, oh, get your head off, the, don't sleep because that's inappropriate. Well, it might be the only chance they've had to sleep in a while. So until I know the whole story, I'm not going to get mad at a student for sleeping. And for every sleep student who's sleeping, that's one less person talking out of turn. So there's that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> the last part that you, you were prompting me on was the whole experiential learning thing. And that to me is huge. And I can't stress enough how much I love experiential learning. I had done field trips from the day I started teaching uh, classes that I was allowed to take field trips on, the standard grade 11 law field trip to the courthouse to see real cases in action. And we just sit and we'd watch the cases, then we talk about them. And totally different than anything you see on TV, of course, much less exciting for the most part, although there were some doozies that we saw, some very, very interesting cases. Uh, but still- like the guy who real... took off his clothes and set them on fire in the courthouse. <laughs> right in the courthouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, again, that was just one of my students. So really, <laughs> it's the only chance they could get. We're not allowed to in class, maybe in court, I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, and then, you know, the standard, I take students, you know, the history students to the museum, or what have you. And I think, first of all, getting out of the classroom is a good thing. And hearing perspective of other people, I would always get the tour guide uh, because they've heard me say things a million times. Let's hear the, let's hear it from somebody else. 
And uh, that sort of was a great way to spend a day. But then I was also given, I've been very, very fortunate to have four major trips in my teaching career. Uh, way back in the, the late 90s, I was with 36 students and four teachers, and we took a bus to Florida to see Chris Hadfield's first space shuttle launch. That's so uh, cool. And, and see, what, I was like, there was one, I couldn't remember who it was in the board, uh, yeah. and I was like, of course, it was Michael. Yeah, who did that? Yeah. <laughs> But I heard about yeah. that. Oh, that wow. was an, uh, it was a fantastic. The ride home when we got stuck in the Pennsylvania mountains in a snowstorm, not quite <laughs> as pleasant. I can tell you that the bus is not a well-ventilated place. Uh, but still, um, yeah, we were on the bus for almost 40 hours coming back. It was rough. Ooh, uh, but the trip, it was worth it. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, sleep deprivation. I learned on that field trip that a tired student is a good student. And we, the days were so full of things that, I mean, all fun things, good things. But by 10 o'clock at night, they were just saying, we want to go to bed. We just, please let us go to bed. We don't want to stay up anymore. And so that was really, really great. We had a great trip there. I taught a summer school course in Kenya. Uh, it was Ontario students who signed up to take their world issues course, but overseas, you know, you could do your biology course in the Galapagos Islands or your English course at Oxford. These kids signed up for their world issues course in Kenya. And that was mm. 28 days in Kenya. We did safaris almost every day. We visited uh, different schools and it was a fantastic experience. Um, one, it, Truly, truly life-changing experience there. Uh, I accompanied kids to France for the rededication of the Vimy Memorial on the 90th anniversary of the Vimy Ridge Battle. Again, fantastic trip. Uh, I was worried that a lot of students were signing up just for the shopping in Paris, but truly they all bought in. And uh, when we stopped at war cemeteries or when we talked to veterans or whatever, they were 100% in. It was a great, great trip. Very, very moving. And then uh, also because of Indigenous Studies, uh, we arranged for an exchange trip to Nunavut. And of all the places I've been in the world, Nunavut is the most foreign in terms of it's like there's no trees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, totally to snow and rock, and that's all you saw. And lichen growing, you know, inch and a half off the ground. Yeah. Uh, the culture, also very, very different, but fantastic. And again, it was supposed to be five days. It ended up being eight because of weather. Uh, which was getting a little bit nerve-wracking, uh, but we got out safely, and uh, it was. And then when the Nunavut students came to Ottawa, most of whom had never uh, been uh, south before, a couple of them had been, but most had never been. You know, they wanted to play on the escalators at the Museum of Civilization more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> we took them ziplining. Some kids had never seen a tree before, and now they're ziplining in the Gatineaus. I mean, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful experience. And so those sorts of things, just the day field trips with students to the overnight or week-long or month-long trips with students, sort of just cemented for me the value of experiential learning. And so when the co-op position came up a few years ago because of a retirement, it was just an easy choice for me to make to pursue that. And the co-op experience where I know you all know what co-op does and students working in placements and getting real world experience has been fantastic. And I think I can't, again, understate the value of a co-op program for students to learn real true experiential learning uh they'll never get it out of a textbook or a google search you know they'll i've had students at vet clinics assist with surgeries and stuff like it. it's just it's off the charts exciting stuff for them that's so cool it just everything you said was just so cool <laughs> and uh, no, and, and I agree with you with the co-op because I, I did co-op in high school as well for 
my computer um, repair, right? Because I was in the computer field. That was what was going to be my life there. And, and so it was really interesting to get all this head knowledge we were working at and the old computers in the classroom. And I actually be like, no, this is a customer's computer. you got to fix it now. You're like, oh, oh. I can't, you're right. You can't overstate enough how, how amazing it is. And so you said none of it was the most foreign to you. Um, we do have a chaplain on our board who was a VP there for, for quite a while. So he, he described that as well. And um, to, to take me through what your students felt after being up um, and up there for that week. Uh, well, very, very strange that it never got dark. Uh, I mean, we were there in late mid-May, so the sun just dipped below the horizon, but it never got dark enough to need to turn on lights to read or anything like that. So that was strange. The uh, the seeing young children, in, Inuit uh, children, playing in the streets at 1130 at night, that's just what they do. If they're, And again, the philosophy is if you're tired, sleep, but if you're not tired, why would you sleep? And so they're outside playing. Um, everybody's door is always unlocked just in case a polar bear wanders into town, but we didn't have to worry about that. So it's always an easy escape from the polar bear. Uh, <laughs> I think huge. So that, I mean, those were all sort of um, adjustments in the sense that, you know, you see kids everywhere. The, uh, the first time they walk into a grocery store and see a small jug of orange juice for $14 kind of threw them off. Uh, and then, so that opens up a whole conversation about food insecurity and things like that. Uh, we did an overnight, uh, well, field trip, I guess the whole thing was a field trip, but we did an overnight camping, um, and, uh, you know, dog sledding and the whole nine yards. So all of these things just totally different to what we're used to doing. Um, in a, in a, in a scenery that's totally different than what we're used to seeing uh in a language that none of us could speak although of course almost everyone in the community we were in kikitarjrak it was called uh would speak english of course it's not like we were isolated and the students formed good relationships with their uh, billets and so on and the school was a great welcoming place and the adults were there and they took good care of us and when our visit was extended by three days because of weather not a single complaint about the extra time and expense that it, it required for us to be there uh, so it was just an overwhelmingly fantastic experience that's so cool that's yeah. really cool that you Very got cool. to have those extended yeah. uh, we'll call them field trips those travel opportunities yep. and those those real deep experiential opportunities that aren't just we're going to the local this, you know, we actually get to immerse ourselves in a different culture and a different, a different way of living and thinking and viewing the world. So let's, let's zoom out a bit now. Uh, you've been a pillar at the school where you teach at Pearson. Uh, it's classified as we call it an engagement school. And you've heard me use my people who've been listening to the show have heard me use that term before, you know, in the U S you would call them quote unquote inner city schools. Um, but in Ottawa here, we call them engagement schools. So we, you know, but we've had people like Tom Conklin, Murray Letts on the show who, who also taught at similar schools, St. Pat's and Immaculata and boast about how they're the best schools to work at. So can you, can you provide your angle and why you love being there so much? Because it is a very tough school. Uh, when you first get in and you're green. And, and I, I know a lot of teachers who've cut their teeth, they're like, whew, I learned a lot about classroom management. Yes, <laughs> you do. 
Uh, first of all, Tom and Murray, excellent teachers, both of them. And I can see why they would uh, have stayed at the schools they were at as well. I got to know them both through the department head role because each was DH at their own schools. Uh, and then Tom and I worked together on a few other projects. And Tom, one of those really creative left field actually he's on think on the other side of the fence behind left field maybe <laughs> even on in, in in the parking lot towards the highway that's where tom's thinking and i mean that as a compliment um because he just he was doing things technology wise before most of us even thought that it was possible online learning type stuff uh anyway engagement schools truly are great um it's funny people who aren't teachers or and I guess there are some teachers because some teachers really don't do well at an engagement school and they can't wait to get out. But a lot of people envision the sort of the ideal teaching situation is you have this lovely classroom with, uh, with you know, perfectly designed students eagerly waiting for instructions for that math formula or cell biology lesson or they just desperately need to know about the Congress of Vienna and you know all of them in pursuit of knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. And really, most classrooms aren't there. Uh, it's great when people are highly engaged on their own without prodding, of course, but most 16-year-olds just aren't there. So the dream school, I think, in the suburbs where you picture all this great parental support and wealth and advantage actually disappoint a little because really you get more calls from parents complaining about a mark than you get them saying what a great lesson you taught on the congress of vienna um and i harp Such on a that good a lot lesson. it Such is it's lesson. so so important i can't believe I, I can do a whole podcast on that only this has um, been the congress of vienna podcast <laughs> <laughs> talleyrand just say the name with me talleyrand anyway um I, I, <laughs> At Pearson, I see students get excited at a 60%, you know, like this is the best. And, you know, they're so real life. Uh, and if they learn that they can trust you, they'll really run through brick walls for you. You're, I never get the feeling of client service provider sort of relationship where I am there to give you the mark that will get you into university. Very, very few students at Pearson sort of approach their education that way. Uh, they're there to, you know, learn and to grow and to do all those sorts of things, but they are keeping it real to borrow the phrase. And so, we do see at engagement schools probably more students who have a good reason to be in crisis. Uh, lower socioeconomic status, uh, all sorts of you know neighborhood concerns and things like that. But really what we've done a good job of at Pearson, I think, um, especially the last six or seven years or so, is that we've done a really good job of seeing why the crisis exists instead of seeking a way to punish the crisis behavior. And when we approach it from that point of view, yeah, we don't want the students to be in a fight in a hall. We haven't had fights in a long time at Pearson. They just, it's, we're, the community is one that really kids get the difference. We're an ethnically, economically, and intellectually diverse community. And that diversity means that it's not something to be afraid of. It's not like anybody is shocked to see students who don't look like them, who don't speak like them, who don't dress like them, who don't think like them. And once you're used to that diversity, the risk of conflict over diversity greatly drops. 
And so what we get is we get as community. And again, I, I'm not trying to suggest that it's a perfect world and that, you know, we stand in a circle holding hands singing Kumbaya. That's not what I'm getting at. But in many ways, I think we're closer to that ideal of a well-run community than a lot of the more uh, uh, uniform looking schools. And so that's my pleasure at Pearson. And I mean, I've been there for almost 30 years and I, I'll retire from Pearson. There's no reason why I'd leave. Uh, it's a great school. And one thing I noticed when I was there, which I don't really see at other schools, is at lunchtime, that staff lunchroom was packed and yep. everyone was there and everyone was chatting. Yep. And you really felt community there. Everyone For sure. was, yep. always, like you said, they're always contacting each other. I, I remember that. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you learn quite quickly that if I have a problem with a student in my class, I'm not the only person who has a problem with that student in my class. The student doesn't have a personal dislike for me. They have an issue that's making them not feel comfortable in schools. And I'm, you know, I'm giving them maybe too much. They're acting out for whatever reason, and we've got to correct that behavior. Uh, but it's the same behaviors in all the classes. So we as teachers then say, okay, what do we have to do to make this student work better at our school. And it could involve VPs, it could involve uh, uh, community services like uh, counselors and so on. Uh, we have psychologists that's in for a day and a half uh, every, every week. And so we have those community supports uh, and it really, really works. Uh, I will say that in COVID time, the staff room is a lot quieter. Yeah, yeah. But it is a dynamic place normally. I. Sure. Just hearing you speak, I, I've never uh, taught in an engagement school, but it seems to me as though um, really part of the success is a really unified staff. You're not yep. seeing pockets here and pockets here and pockets here. It, it really, from what I'm hearing, staff unity is really important, which is something that makes all schools great. Um, but it yep. seems as though it's something that's really embodied where you are. Well, it's just necessary. Uh, everyone's got to sort of be working together as a team. And that way you are. And again, I don't want to make it sound like a prison because even though there are similarities, but, you know, the staff needs to be in control of the building. And if the students know the staff is in control of the building and there's structure and there's reliability and regularity and routine, then they are free to act as themselves within that routine. And again, that diversity thing allows for that to happen with a great amount of flair and interest without it getting out of hand and i think it works really really well and pearson also had my favorite thing which i stole and brought to other schools i hope they don't mind which was june is on the milk that was <laughs> so for yes, those of you, you know, who don't know yeah. for Go those ahead. of you who don't know one of the greatest moments in the year and you have to tell me which teacher who brought it to pearson is when you go to the grocery store and you see the expiry date on the milk is june because then you know the end of the year is coming and it gives you hope. Originally, Paul Delorier, who was a mainstay at Pearson before I got there and one of the uh, strong, silent types, uh, never afraid to tell it like it is. He was the June is on the milk. And then, you know, Bob Shaw, Bob Shaw took over the phrase when uh, Paul retired. But there you go. The June <laughs> is on the milk. On the milk. That's We're right. There. We're making... June is on the milk. Once you see that expiry date is soon, but you know the problem is the preservatives they put in things nowadays extend that. <laughs> it's safe. Yeah, don't go buy yogurt. On the milk. <laughs> well, Vito, Chris, uh, let me tell you, uh, 
I mean, you know, I think you're innovative. I love hearing your stories. Michael, I'm just sitting. He, I'm sitting back here, almost speechless at some of the, some of the stories and some of the things you've told us today. But you know what time it is, Vito? Let me just check my watch. It's it's Paulson points time. time. We're never gonna get it. We're never gonna get it. But no, we will. We, we... My goodness, tonight, listeners, we're talking with Michael Bernards tonight. And again, I say this a lot, but I believe in it. We're getting master classes here, friends. Um, the Paulson points for tonight, number one, the people in your building can help you so much because there's wisdom inside the walls. Number two, after you find your way, find your thing. Michaels was volleyball. He became the convener. He's coaching. What's your thing so you can make those deeper relationships, those layered relationships. Uh, our next one, friends, say yes. Something is better than nothing. Open our minds and our students' minds are going to follow. Hey, focusing on the students doesn't ruin the curriculum. You know the unapologists love it. You know Michael loves it. We love experiential learning, and so should you. Friends, the perfect school doesn't exist. Make your school the perfect school by forming good relationships with your colleagues, with your students, and shedding your fears. Get engaged. Get excited. But Vita, wait. There's more. We got the big vibes of the night. The big vibe right here. Hey, there's no style or trend in teaching that works for everyone. Find what works for you. Find what works with your students and go with what works. And friends, I got some news and I'm, I'm about to break some hearts here, uh, Vito. I'm about to, Michael, I'm about to break some hearts. Oh, no, don't do it. Oh, no. Especially Mine? Michael. Michael, I don't know if you're ready for this one. No one remembers the lesson on the Congress of Vienna, <laughs> but your students remember feeling welcome or unwanted. Your students remember feeling to be made to feel smart or to be made to feel stupid. Your students remember if they felt loved or if they felt disliked. Your students remember if they felt capable or if they felt inadequate. That's what your students remember. What's the classroom you're building? Listeners... We had Michael Bernards on, and uh, I think he got to the heart of a lot of teaching tonight. Thank you so much, Michael. You're very welcome. Happy to have been here. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unapologist Podcast. Join us next week when we'll talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. Podcast.